You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 411 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we talked about the dramatic rebel breakthrough on the third day of the Battle of Chickamauga, when James Longstreet's wing of the Confederate Army rolled forward right through the gaping hole in the Federal line. Everything went to pieces for the Yankees south of the Gap, where the rebels had broken through. Individual units made brave and determined stands, and a number of sharp combats took place, but no one on the badly disorganized Union right could halt the onslaught of Longstreet's Confederates. However, all was not peaches and cream for the Confederates. In the last show, we talked about Longstreet's command failure, when he failed to seize the reins of command himself after John B. Hood was seriously wounded. As you guys will recall, Hood was in charge of the attack column that plunged through the hole in the Federal line, and when he went down and left the field, the momentum of the attack faltered. It was a critical moment that called for decisive action, but instead Longstreet called for his lunch to be brought forward. And despite a personal reconnaissance of the ground to the north of the breakthrough, Longstreet also failed to notice a critical half-mile gap between the Yankees' Kelly Field position and the high ground to the west that would come to be known as Horseshoe Ridge, where federal units shattered by the rebel breakthrough were rallying. This vital information, if exploited, would have allowed Longstreet to cut the federal army in two, but the gap between Horseshoe Ridge and Kelly Field remained unnoticed all afternoon. Perhaps Hood would have been able to find and exploit the gap, but when he was wounded just after noon, the Confederate attack simply lost cohesion. If, on the Confederate side, Longstreet failed to exploit the success of the breakthrough and allowed the rebel attack to lose steam and run off the rails, The disaster on the Union right was nevertheless so great that, for the federal commander, William Rosecrans, the situation rapidly turned into an absolute train wreck. In fact, by the end of the last episode, after he rode away from the battlefield, after being caught up in the chaos and confusion following the disaster on the federal right, an exhausted and rattled Rosecrans 
had made the fateful decision to go back to Chattanooga while his chief of staff, Brigadier General and future U.S. President James Garfield, rode back to the battlefield to see what had become of George Thomas and the rest of the army. I filled my cartridge box and put some in my pocket, and then I intended to clean my gun, and as I had no wiper of my own, I had to borrow one off a fellow named Bill Craig in our company. I had the ramrod out and the wiper nearly screwed on when I turned my head to the left and looked down through the woods and saw them coming. I unscrewed the wiper and handed it back and said to Bill, They are coming. I had fired about eight or ten rounds when all at once I felt something strike me. I thought I was shot through the foot because it pained me so. It felt as if some person had thrown a log on it or something, but as soon as I straightened my leg, I saw I was shot above the knee. I then crawled off about ten feet and lay down behind a log and in front of the orderly sergeant. His name was L. L. Sadler. I lay there a little while and groaned once or twice, but I soon got ashamed of myself. I then commenced talking to Sadler. I told him to pour it in them. I could not do anything more, but I wanted him to give it to them, his share and mine. I asked him if they would leave me there, for I was confident they would have to fall back. He did not answer me. He did not fire more than two or three rounds before they all got up and fell back, leaving me there between two fires. I never felt so bad in my life as I did at that time. I stood a pretty good chance of getting killed, and if I lived, I would be a prisoner, a most charming prospect. After laying there about half an hour under a most terrible fire and narrowly escaping being shot, I was taken prisoner as the rebels advanced up the hill. I was treated pretty well by them fellows. As I lay there, I could see the skulkers coming, and I thought I would give away my canteen and coffee, as I could see that was what they most desired. I did give it away, and they promised to come back and helped carry me back to the rear, but they never came. Oh, what a miserable night that was to me. I lay there thinking of all my friends and those I loved, and I never likely to see them again. I was wounded, tired, hungry, cold and dirty, and worst of all, a prisoner. I did not care so much about my wound as I did about being a prisoner. Private Robert Hannaford, 93rd Ohio Infantry, Baldwin's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. I was severely wounded at about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, September 20th, and lay on the field until sometime in the afternoon when I was taken to the field hospital. The field hospital, located in an old field, consisted of a few hastily constructed brush arbors and a large quantity of straw spread on the ground, arrived from the battlefield. Many of the wounded were groaning. A few were crying out in their agony while others were quietly dying. Assistant surgeons and attendants were moving rapidly among the men, giving relief as fast as possible. The head surgeons, with bared arms and wearing long, blood-stained aprons, were busy 
with knives and saws, amputating shattered limbs, and coolly tossing them to a large pile of severed arms and legs, which grew in size until it was so large that it would have more than filled the body of a large two-horse wagon. To me, the place was horrible, even more so than the battlefield itself, for the enthusiasm and excitement of battle were missing, although the thunder of cannon filled the air and the continued rattle of musketry seemed quite near, while at times that weird, thrilling yell, which had become so famous, could be distinctly heard. Private William Oliphant, 6th Texas Infantry, Deschler's Brigade, Army of Tennessee. Rosecrans arrived at Chattanooga about four o'clock that afternoon. By then, he was unable to dismount or to walk unassisted. Once inside the headquarters building, he slumped in a chair, his head in his hands, the picture of exhaustion and despair. Well, old Rosie may have called it a day and turned his horse's head toward Chattanooga, but back on the battlefield, men were still fighting and dying still locked in fierce combat as the rattle of musketry, the thunder of cannon, and the howling of the rebel yell continued to fill the air. The battle was, in fact, far from over. When John B. Hood had been wounded, it happened when Law's division had approached the northern end of Dyer Field, where they were met with a withering volley of musketry from a line of Federals drawn up behind a rail fence at the north edge of the field. This was Colonel Charles Harker's brigade of Wood's division. Harker's brigade was one of Wood's units that had marched away from the front line, leaving that gaping hole through which the Confederates had poured through. When Thomas Wood became aware of the disaster unfolding in Dyer Field behind him, he ordered Harker to turn his brigade around and go back to try to contain the damage. For a time, Harker succeeded as Law's Confederates recoiled in disorder. As we mentioned before, these had been Hood's own troops, and when he rode to rally them, he was hit and toppled from his horse when an enemy bullet shattered his right thigh just below the hip. Harker's Federals had managed to sap the momentum of the rebel advance, but the reverse proved to be temporary because passing through Law's disordered ranks, came Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw's division. Just arrived from Virginia, too late to see action on the 19th, this formation consisted of two brigades, Kershaw's own South Carolinians and a brigade of Mississippians under Brigadier General Benjamin Humphreys. Their regular division commander, Major General Lafayette McClaws, had not yet arrived, so Kershaw ended up in charge of the formation here at Chickamauga. The command situation may not have been ideal, but still, these were some of the best troops in the Army of Northern Virginia, and they were fresh and spoiling for a fight. And, on this day, they had the added advantage of wearing new, bluish-colored uniforms that had just been issued to them during their journey south from Virginia. The unusual color, as well as the fact all of these soldiers were dressed alike, 
made Harker's Yankees hesitate, thinking it was a body of friendly troops marching across the field toward them. Among the prisoners taken by Harker's brigade were a number from Longstreet's corps of Lee's army, which had been sent from Virginia to reinforce Bragg. It was easy to distinguish them from the soldiers of Bragg's army by their clothing. Most of them wore the regular Confederate uniform, while the dress of the Western men was a go-as-you-please matter, with every imaginable variety of garments and head covering, Scarcely any two of the latter were clothed alike. Lieutenant Wilbur Heinemann, 65th Ohio Infantry, Harker's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. In any army, there are always plenty of men cocked and primed for shooting off tongue bombs. So, many not very choice expressions were heard, such as, I'm damned hungry. I wish Abe Lincoln was in hell, and many others of like import. I noticed a group of officers at a short distance, and to the surprise of all, we heard the stentorian but perfectly cool voice of General Kershaw say, That is lovely language to be coming from the mouths of South Carolina gentlemen. And that was all he said, and it was quite enough, because after that, one could have heard a pin drop while we were crossing that cornfield. Private John Cox, 2nd South Carolina Infantry, Kershaw's Brigade, Army of Tennessee. As Kershaw's Confederates, in their new bluish-colored uniforms, advanced toward Harker's position, the Federal muskets fell silent, and the Yankee color bearers rose and began to wave their flags vigorously back and forth, displaying the stars and stripes. As the mystery troops drew closer, they answered with a volley, and the Federals, at last realizing their mistake, now opened fire. But it was too late. The rebels had made the most of the confusion caused by their uniforms. They pressed forward against Harker's line, and the outnumbered Yankees fell back, withdrawing over the last hill at the far northwest corner of Dyer Field, and on through a valley of sparse open woodland, then out into the open again, and up the slope of another hill, the last on which they could hope to make a stand. On the crest stood the modest cabin of a farmer named Snodgrass. Kershaw's Confederates pursued Harker's Federals, but ran head-on into a devastating blast of fire from the high ground that sent them tumbling back into the valley, because Harker's troops had found not only a strong position on which to regroup, but also reinforcements. The reinforcements consisted of Brannon's division, driven from its old position on the edge of the rebel breakthrough and now deployed further up the slope from the Snodgrass cabin on a series of undulating wooded hills that together would come to be known as Horseshoe Ridge. Also present were fragments of several other divisions, a ragtag and bobtail assortment of units from company to regiment strength, 
plus a number of individual soldiers of all ranks who had become separated from their parent formations during the confusion and hard fighting after the Confederate breakthrough. Most of the Federal units and soldiers coming together on Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge were at loose ends, and the position would have been far weaker than its numbers indicated except for one thing, and that was the stalwart presence of George Thomas. Along with Rosecrans, 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook and 21st Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden had also been swept up in the collapse of the Union right and had left the field. So that left 14th Corps Commander George Thomas as the senior federal general remaining on the battlefield. Thomas, at first, had been mostly unaware of the severity of the disaster unfolding south of his position, but the sound of heavy firing behind him had brought him over from Kelly Field. George Thomas at once understood the scope of the crisis and realized the army, or what was left of it on the battlefield, was teetering on the edge of catastrophe. Taking command of the troops on Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge, he made his headquarters on the reverse slope, just behind Harker's lines at the Snodgrass cabin. The stolid Thomas wasn't given to dramatics, but when he encountered Charles Harker, he told him, This hill must be held, and I trust you to do it. The scrappy Harker replied, We will hold it or die here. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. It was about noon when we flanked into the field and heard from a party of jubilant officers that the center and right wing of the Federal Army had been smashed and driven from the field. Although our throats were parched, we raised a great rebel shout. But when we got well into the field and faced north, we saw something that looked ugly. There facing us was a Federal line of battle much longer than our own line. 
We could see no other Confederate troops near us, although we knew Humphrey's brigade of our division was somewhere to our right in the woods, but we lost no time. Kershaw gave immediate orders to advance and attack the Federals in our front, and the whole brigade did so enthusiastically. After one volley, the Federals gave way and fell back up a sort of knob, which was the north end of the field. The top of this knob was covered by dense woods. From the north side, another and higher wooded hill rose up, and this we learned afterwards was called Snodgrass Hill, famous as being the scene of the hardest, longest, and most bloody part of the Battle of Chickamauga. Private John Cox, 2nd South Carolina Infantry. Our men at the word of command at three o'clock went boldly forward, descending a hill into the gorge and advancing up the one opposite. A steady and rapid fire assailed us as we advanced, both artillery and infantry. After an unavailing effort, we were driven back, and the enemy in turn charged us. Our men had been charged when in a state of confusion, and it was an equal chance whether they would stand or run. But they rallied and drove their assailants back with heavy loss. Taking advantage of the disorder in the enemy ranks, the brigade charged in turn and gained some distance. Again moving forward, they were driven back a space, and the enemy repeating their first maneuver, but with less success, laid themselves open to another attack. The first ridge was carried, but on a second one just as strong, the enemy again rallied and showed fight. From this one, they were driven to a third, with the fight resembling and being of the same character as that at the first hill. There was no more obstinately contested ground anywhere on that day than at this point. The blood of the men seemed to be up, and there was but little flinching. On several occasions, the colors of two of the regiments fell into the enemy's hands, their bearers killed or wounded, but were quickly recovered. Our ammunition was expended again and again in many instances, but the men supplied themselves from their dead or wounded comrades or those of the Yankees. Towards the latter part of the fight, there was scarcely any order preserved and no defined line. Regiments and companies were utterly mixed up, and it resembled more a skirmish on a grand scale than the conflict of a line of battle. Officers and men never before or after behaved better or showed more indomitable pluck. Brigadier General Arthur Manigo, Brigade Commander, Army of Tennessee. George Thomas's presence put new spark and confidence into the Federal soldiers holding Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge, and steeled them to meet the Confederate onslaught. The Yankees would need all the nerve they could muster, because the rebel attacks went on and on. Kershaw's first assault had come shortly after 1 p.m., and subsequent Confederate attempts to storm the high ground held by the Federals continued all afternoon. One after another, all the units of Longstreet's wing of the rebel army, except for Stuart's division, joined the assaults. But the Confederate attacks were confused and disjointed. 
Longstreet had been relying on Hood to coordinate things. But even after he knew Hood was down, Longstreet neither took over the active direction of the assault himself, nor assigned anyone else to do so. The result was a series of piecemeal attacks on Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge that frittered away the Confederate advantage in numbers. And we keep harping on it, but Longstreet also remained unaware of that incredibly vulnerable 500-yard gap between the Federal positions at Kelly Field to the east and Snodgrass Hill to the west. On the other hand, George Thomas was painfully aware of the gap, but had no troops to fill it. If Confederate troops had marched through that gap, and Longstreet had the troops available, they would have found themselves squarely in the rear of the Yankees' Kelly Field position. In any case, the gap remained a nerve-wracking threat of absolute disaster for Thomas, while Longstreet and his staff settled down to a picnic of bacon and sweet potatoes and rebel soldiers struggled up the slopes of Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge in furious but uncoordinated attacks. What the Confederate assaults lacked in overall direction, they nearly made up for in fury. All along the Federal line on the high ground, the combat was desperate. On Snodgrass Hill, Harker made clever use of the terrain by arranging his brigade in two lines. One would stand and reload on the back slope, while the other delivered a volley into the faces of the charging rebels. Then a rapid passage of lines would put another solid rank of loaded muskets on the crest. Without breastworks or woods for cover, Harker skillfully shielded his men behind the crest of the hill. Just to the west, along the rolling high ground of Horseshoe Ridge, the more complex terrain made for a complicated fight, but the result was the same. The Federals threw back one Confederate charge after another. But the very persistence of the rebel attacks threatened to carry the position. Taking stock during a brief lull between attacks, George Thomas learned that his men's cartridge boxes now contained an average of two rounds each, and the 14th Corps' ammunition wagons had been caught up in the rout and were now somewhere on the road back to Chattanooga, well beyond recall. It appeared that if the defenders of the ridge were going to stop the next Confederate rush, they would have to do it with their bayonets or their bare hands. At points in the wood, the fighting had almost been hand-to-hand, yet was but a prelude to the struggle that awaited us for the possession of Horseshoe Ridge that long, eventful Sabbath afternoon. But this piece of close work was not destitute of amusing scenes. At one point, in a countercharge, we occupied a position held a few moments before by the enemy, which brought their skulkers and killed and wounded in the rear of, or mixed up with, our irregular line. Seeing a fine-looking young soldier dressed in a neat suit of dark blue, unarmed, and standing behind a tree for protection, a pompous colonel inquired why he was not firing like the others. "'Why, I'm a color-bearer,' said the soldier, hugging the tree still closer and exhibiting his color belt. 
Well, then where is your flag, said the colonel, who liked to carry a point. I lost it in that close work back there, said the soldier. Well, pick up a gun and go to work like the other men, said the officer, thinking he had added one more soldier to our depleted ranks. Colonel, said the soldier with a kind of foolish look getting possession of his face, I belong to the other side. And, sure enough, it was one of Longstreet's men that the colonel had been trying to force into our ranks. Well, just then was no time to care for straggling prisoners, and as the enemy occupied the ground a short time later, the young color bear probably rejoined his regiment. Private Jacob Alspaugh, 31st Ohio Infantry, Connell's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. Discovering his men were almost out of ammunition must have alarmed him, but for George Thomas, the news got worse before it got better. Out on Horseshoe Ridge, at the extreme right end of the makeshift federal line, the 21st Ohio had been making one of the epic defensive stands of the entire war. Those few hundred Buckeyes were holding down the western flank of the Union position, and they'd been under increasing pressure as one Confederate attack after another had clawed for the vulnerable end of the federal line. If the rebels could outflank the 21st Ohio, they could roll up the entire federal line and force the Yankees off the high ground they were clinging to so stubbornly. The Ohioans had an advantage in that seven of their companies were equipped with Colt revolving rifles, a long gun version of the successful Colt handgun. The rifle version wasn't an entirely satisfactory weapon, but it could nevertheless deliver five shots in less than ten seconds, and firepower was what counted for the hard-pressed Buckeyes holding the western end of the federal position on Horseshoe Ridge. They performed near miracles of ingenuity in scrounging cartridges to keep their increasingly fouled and overheated weapons firing. However, it appeared their valor and resourcefulness were to be for naught, because the numerically superior Confederates sensed victory just beyond their reach. The rebels fought like tigers, and when some of them finally succeeded in reaching the crest beyond the Ohioans' flank, they moved to roll up the 21st line. But although the lieutenant colonel commanding the 21st went down, the regiment's major managed to get a couple of companies swung back at right angles to refuse the flank and counter the Confederate threat. However, by that time there were more rebels than Yankees on this end of Horseshoe Ridge, and their numbers were beginning to tell. All the rapidly thinning Federal line could do was hang on and fight with grim determination and pray help would arrive from somewhere. Well, unknown to the beleaguered Federals on Horseshoe Ridge, help was on the way, because six miles away, Major General Gordon Granger, commander of the Army of the Cumberland's Reserve Corps, had been making the decision of his life as a soldier. As you guys will recall, Rosecrans had stationed Granger north of the battlefield at Rossville Gap with orders to hold that point. 
With the troops he had on hand at Rossville, his reserve corps was in reality more the size of a large division. But nonetheless, Granger felt he could be of more use on the battlefield than sitting on his hands guarding the road to Chattanooga. And so he had fretted through the sounds of battle on the 19th, and now on the 20th, when another day brought even more intense thunders from the south and mounting clouds of powder smoke rising into the sky, Gordon Granger faced his moment of truth as an army officer. Would he obey orders and stay out of the fight, or should he reckon that he was needed on the battlefield and that somehow Rosecrans had failed to get word to him. He walked up and down in front of his flag, nervously pulling his beard. Once, stopping, he said, Why the devil does Rosecrans keep me here? There is nothing in front of us now. There is the battle he said, pointing in the direction of Thomas. Every moment the sounds of battle grew louder, while the many columns of dust rolling together mingled with the smoke that hung over the scene. At eleven o'clock, with Granger, I climbed a high hayrick nearby. We sat there for ten minutes, listening and watching. Then Granger jumped up, thrust his spyglass into its case, and exclaimed an oath, "'I am going to Thomas!' Orders or no orders. And if you go, I replied, it may bring disaster to the army and you to a court-martial. There's nothing in our front now but ragtag bobtail cavalry, he replied. Don't you see Bragg is piling his whole army on Thomas? I'm going to his assistance. We quickly climbed down the rick, and going to Steedman, Granger ordered him to move his command over there, pointing toward the place from which came the sounds of battle. Before half-past eleven o'clock, Steedman's command was in motion. Granger, with his staff and escort, rode in advance. Steedman, after accompanying them a short distance, rode back to the head of his column. Thomas was nearly four miles away. The day had grown very warm, yet the troops marched rapidly over the narrow road, which was covered ankle-deep with dust that rose in suffocating clouds. Completely enveloped in it, the moving column swept along like a desert sandstorm. A little farther on, we were met by a staff officer sent by General Thomas to discover whether we were friends or enemies. He did not know whence friends could be coming, and the enemy appeared to be approaching from all directions. All of this shattered army of the Cumberland left on the field was with Thomas, but not more than one-fourth of the men of the army who went into battle at the opening were there. Thomas's losses in killed and wounded had been dreadful. As his men dropped out, his line was contracted to half its length. Now its flanks were bent back, conforming to ridges shaped like a horseshoe. Major Joseph Fullerton, Staff, Major General Gordon Granger. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, 
but rather than a book recommendation, we'll remind you that Rich shot a couple of videos at Chickamauga when he visited the battlefield last summer, if you'd like to check those out. Yep, and one of those videos is from Horseshoe Ridge. I spent a quiet morning there with no other people around, just some deer. It was very peaceful, unlike what took place there during the battle. Anyway, those videos are on YouTube. If you pull up YouTube, just search for CW Podcast and they should come up. And then as we wrap up this episode, we want to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfit Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thank you to Kevin M., Chris V., Jamie M., and Jakey, Gilda567, Richard M., David L., and John83068, Michael R., William W., and Rich E., And thanks to Ken A. and Eric J. for their donations. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.